You take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Do you remember your assignment from last week? <laughs> ah, that's always a frightful statement when you make that kind of statement at school. Do you remember what the assignment is? And it's been a whole week, and yeah, that, that can be frightening. Say, what was the assignment? The assignment was to start memorizing Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And not so much just the opening statement in verse 6, but the statement of the Lord. Because this is what we're going to be looking at for about the next nine, ten weeks, uh, more than likely, as uh, we look at different times that this is used. But uh, you see the statement there, the Lord God. Okay, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and or forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. And so there is a rhyme and a pattern to this. I always uh, have to do it phrase by phrase for me to just kind of keep this thing. Uh, going in my own mind, but my guess is you don't have it memorized yet. So let's just read through that statement as a congregation here this evening. So uh, we're looking at verse 6, Exodus chapter 34. Uh, We'll read uh, starting halfway down the statement of the Lord and uh, read right on through verse number 7. So let's uh, read together. The Lord, the Lord God, Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So, that is something I, I thought about it, and I may next week come up with something that's like a card you can carry around or something like that, or uh, you can do this yourself uh, with the computer technology. You can print this off fairly quickly and have something that you could just carry around uh, with you. But uh, we are going to look at that passage this morning or this evening, but uh, we're going to go back, and I want us to realize how we get to that passage. Why was that necessary for God to make a statement like that? And so we're going to start off in Exodus 32 and go through Exodus 34 this evening and kind of get, it's not going to be a great outline that you're going to have tonight. I just want you to get the story. Why did God have to get to this point where he has to make a declaration like this? Uh, What's the importance and why was there a need for this? And uh, this uh, section of Exodus 32 uh, to 34 is not what we would call one of the highlights of Israel's history. In fact, it's one of the lowlights that is, well, referred to quite often as you go through the Old Testament. It is the incident that we know as the golden calf. See, what the nation of Israel had uh, been told was that this was something they weren't supposed to do. 
Just a mere five weeks before, about 40 days before, the nation of Israel had actually had the opportunity to hear the voice of God. God talked to them out of this great cloud that was at Mount Sinai with the thunderings and the lightnings and the sounds of horns and uh, the visual display of a mountain that's going up in smoke like a volcano. Uh, They're observing all of this and they're told to approach God, to prepare to meet their God. And then God declares what we know as the Ten Commandments out of that cloud. In the midst of those Ten Commandments, and understand why God gave the Ten Commandments, there was multiple reasons. One of them uh, was to just simply define what his character would be like in people who are created in his own image. Okay, with people who are looking like God or acting like what God would be like, we are to be reflections of the image of God in our lives. This is how they're going to act. And the very first thing is that they're not going to have any other gods, and then they're not going to create anything that is, well, what they're going to worship. They're not going to make idols. And along with that uh, statement, there was an understanding that the Lord put with this. He talked about his own character. He said, I'm a jealous God. For us, that's a statement where you think about jealousy and envy. Those are horrible things. You don't want to have those. Those are bad habits and bad things. But when you think about it in the scripture, uh, the, the phraseology there is this, that is, yes, I'm a jealous God, but I'm a zealous God. And you say, what is he zealous about? He's zealous about his relationship with his people. That he is seen by his people properly, but he's also one who will go after them in love and in mercy but if they decide to go their own way we found last week as we looked at this in exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 that god will also visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children children you say well that sounds pretty horrible that god would judge the children's children well the statement there is just merely to be taken this way if the father commits a sin and gets judged for it the child is going to get judged for the same sin It's not like, okay, the father was judged, now we can get away with it. No, God will continue to judge that kind of sin. And in this case, it was the sin of idolatry that the Lord was talking about. He didn't want his image, his glory messed up by people trying to say, this is what God looks like, and they would make an idol. So we'd gone through that uh, command last week, and God's sort of revealing his character. I'm a jealous God. I want to be in relation with you. I'm a God who's uh, concerned about you. It was at the end of that, and we didn't talk about this, that one those, once those Ten Commandments were given, the people went to Moses and said, please, go before God because we're frightened by his voice. You know, you go and you talk to him and then tell us what he says because we, you know, we don't know if we'll live hearing his voice. And so what Moses does is he proceeds to go back and forth up and down this mountain and share with these people what God has been telling him. And the things that he said, if you're going to be my people, I've chosen you out of all the nations, here's what you're going to look like and be like as a people. And you get to Exodus chapter 24, and there's this covenant ceremony. There's a a lamb that is killed, and God says this, are you going to be my people? If you're going to be my people, I'll be your God. And the people said, you'll be our God. 
We'll have you to be our God. And so there's a ceremony that the animal is killed, blood is shed. That's what a covenant is. A covenant meant to cut something. And so you have this animal that's killed, and it was a covenant, an agreement that God would be their God, and they would be the people. And we had a written copy of the Ten Commandments there, and blood was sprinkled on that, and then blood was turned around, and they sprinkled blood on the people, and they said, this covenant is sealed. It's like saying, if you break this covenant, you're worthy of death. Okay, this is a binding agreement. So the people had agreed to be God's people. To have him as their God. We go from Exodus chapter 24 to Exodus chapter 32. And if you've ever read this section, it's a section that kind of gets a little bit tedious and hard to figure out because there's all sorts of instructions. What Moses does is he goes up the hill and he has these two tablets that God is eventually going to write the Ten Commandments on. But he's also giving a lot of instructions about a building called the tabernacle. You go, what's the tabernacle for? Well, the tabernacle was for, uh, designed to be a place where the people of God could meet with God. They could go there and God said, I'll meet with you here. And there was a certain structure that was given. Uh, and it was a pattern that, that would be followed for you to approach God, which was ultimately going to be a picture of, well, how do we approach God ultimately it's through christ so this whole tabernacle is a picture of how to approach god it's through christ but god would set this up because he wanted to be right in the center of his people and for his people to fellowship with him he delivered them from egypt all the plagues that were there because he wanted to fellowship with them i mean that's why humankind was created originally Humankind was originally created in order to fellowship with God. This is why Adam and Eve were in the garden and God came in the evening and fellowshiped with them. He delighted in that. That was something he wanted. Well, what you have here in the book of Exodus is God restoring this opportunity for his people to fellowship with him in a location, in a place, and, and to meet with him. The problem is, is that Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. See, before this, he would go up the hill and come back down. And people would be like, okay, well, he just went into that volcanic cloud uh, and he's come back out again. He's okay. Well, he goes up into that and he's there for 40 days. And as you read the account, he never tells the people he's going to be gone for 40 days. He just goes up. And for the nation of Israel, the two million people that are there, they begin to become very antsy about the fact that Moses hasn't returned. In fact, it becomes rumored, and, and the thought is, is that he's gone up there, and some reason he's died on that mountain, and he's not coming back down. So what do we do now? Because we don't have Moses. You say, well, what have they forgotten in all of this? That they had God. Okay, they still had God. They might not have Moses as a leader anymore, but they still had God. God had covenanted with them that I'll be your God if you're my people. I'll take care of you. I will watch over you. I have a jealousy about that relationship. I'm in earnest about it happening. But that's not what happens when you get to Exodus chapter 32. And so as you come to this, that's all the background that we have to this point. And you see in verse 1 that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, 
out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not or we know not what has become of him. I mean, they are saying this, we want you to create gods for us to lead us. They even use the same terminology because it's the same word for God. The God who's already made this covenant with them. Aaron, we know the story a little bit. Uh, Aaron said, break the golden earrings which are in thy ears of thy wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them unto me. And the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, uh, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. You say, why did they make a golden calf? No one really knows why. There's no explanation other than the fact that they would have seen this type of thing in the, the land of Egypt, that the bull was a common thing in their religious idolatry that they had. It wasn't necessarily that the God itself uh, was the bull. It was that the bull carried around the God. And so the people make this idol that's there representing one who bears God and carries God around. And they're thinking, okay, this one will carry God for us. And they start this whole process of saying, well, let's worship this thing that we've created. And Aaron goes, well, what we're going to do is have a festival and celebrate Jehovah God. He, he puts a good tone on it. He's saying, okay, we have this God that we've created here, this idol that we've made, but we're going to worship Jehovah, even though we've just made ourselves some molten image that, well, is a breaking of the second commandment. Very commandment that God said, listen, this is the one where I have a certain character and image. Don't make an idol or anything to worship it. You'll get confused. And so you find that these people, verse 6, they rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, what they start doing is just the very activities they had seen the nations do in the worship of their gods. They take that up. God then warns uh, Moses, well not warns Moses, or informs Moses what's going on down the hill is he's... Moses is fellowshipping with God, that the people have done this. They've, verse 8, they've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. I mean, it's only taken them five weeks, and they're already breaking the command as a nation. Didn't take them long to do that. And as they come down the hill, Moses finds Joshua, who was there waiting for him. But in the midst of this, you have Moses uh, praying to the Lord. Look at this prayer that when God says there's this stiff-necked people and I am ready to destroy them. Verse 11, Moses besought the Lord. 
I sought God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he, God, bring them out to slay them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed is the stars of the heaven and all this land that i have spoken of will i give unto your seed and they shall inherit it forever and the lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people i mean moses goes before god because god's ready to destroy this nation and make a nation out of him but he goes remember the egyptians goes to God and goes, these Egyptians, the ones that you showed your power to, that you displayed that their gods were nothing, and you suddenly bring the nation of Israel out and you destroy them, what are they going to think of you as a god? You, know, you got them so far, but, oh, well, couldn't get them any further and destroyed them. And then he goes, remember the promise you made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that their children would be as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea that you promised that you would be their God and that you would make them a great nation. And it says God repented of the evil that he was going to do. Uh, He was waiting to see the response of Moses. And so he doesn't do this. And we have the story. Moses comes down the hill. Joshua's confused. Uh, verse 15, uh, he thinks that there may be a war going on and he's going, no, it's not a war because it's not the sound of someone defeated or someone winning. It's the sound of basically partying. And it came to pass that he comes down to the camp and he sees all of these things in verse 19. He takes these tables that are in his hands. If you think about this, these are tables of stone written by the finger of God. You know, everything else you think about as far as written statements and the like uh, are ones that men have penned. But in this case, God was the one who actually wrote this. And what he does with these Ten Commandments showing visibly that the nation had broken this covenant, this promise that will be your people and you'll be our God. He takes these Ten Commandments and he shatters them there. And there's this going back and forth in the camp where Moses says uh, unto Aaron and basically says, what happened? How did you do this? I left you in charge. How did it happen? And Aaron played the role of innocent bystander. You know, this is an accident. It's a really fantastic story. Sounds like some children's stories you hear when you ask them questions. I mean, he says this in verse 22, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, make us gods which go before us. For as this Moses, this man, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And I said unto them, whatsoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it in the fire and there came out this calf. I just happened to throw the, the gold into there and all oh, this just kind of moved right out. It just, just appeared. Don't know how it got here. Moses says, he sees what's going on. In verse 25, Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame amongst their enemies. That Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? 
Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword at his side, and go in and out from the gate through the camp. Slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Say, what happened here? Well, he just commands the Levites to go through and basically find out, are you wanting to serve God, or are you wanting to continue serving your idols? And there seems to be at least 3,000 people that are there that are going, hey, this is great. We're enjoying this. And the Levites carried out the sentence of, the, well, of Moses, and the 3,000 fell and died. So it came on verse 30, it came to pass on the, the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I go up unto the Lord, preventure that I make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and then you see that line that's there in verse number 31. You know, why is that line there? Moses doesn't know what else to say. If, if you will forgive their sin, and it's kind of stating, I'm not sure how you're going to do that. But he does offer a possibility of forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 32. If not, blot me out, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written He's basically saying to God, if it's at all possible, blot my name out of the book of life for the salvation of these individuals, if that's at all possible. There's a thing called the book of life. You say, really? Yeah, well, you read in Revelation that those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life cast in a lake of fire. Your name's not found there. Uh, you are forever separated from God. And what Moses is suggesting, suggesting is maybe that it's, if it's possible that he could be the sacrifice that he's willing to give up his life for the sake of this stubborn people. And say, would that at all be possible? Could uh, Moses as a man make atonement for people? And the answer is no, because he was just as sinful as they were. You needed a sinless sacrifice. Moses was not the one that could do that. But you do see in the heart of Moses, he loves these people. Stubborn, frustrating as they could be, he's willing to insert himself in the place of these people. Verse 33, the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore, now go lead the people into the place which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, uh, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. It seems to happen is that there's a sickness that comes upon the camp. It's not that all the people die, but they go underneath some sort of sickness. And it is obvious that it is God-given. God doesn't kill them, but they realize we're, you know, we've done something horribly, horribly wrong. And you go, well, what, what happens? Well, verse uh, chapter 33, we can go a little bit faster through this, but uh, basically what Moses comes back and says uh, to the people is that God is going to go and not go with you. He's going to be outside the camp. 
He's going to send an alternative, a messenger who's going to be the one who guides you. When the people hear this, uh, they actually go into mourning. You say, how do you know that? Well, uh, you find this, that in verse number five, uh, the Lord says unto the people, say unto the children of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thine ornaments from thee that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. By the way this is worded, it seems like for the rest of their journey in the wilderness, none of them are wearing jewelry. That would have been a sign of mourning. I mean, at least they respond and go, yes, we have sinned. And we are visibly showing the fact that we have sinned. We acknowledge this, that we're worthy of God's judgment. If he decides to leave us, that he's got good reason to do that. But at least they respond as a people. But God says, I'm going to meet out in the camp. And you have this story where Moses goes to this tent outside the camp. And there the glory of God appears. And it's way outside the camp. And everybody can look out there and see Moses go there. Joshua, a non-Levite, is standing outside the door. And Moses goes in there to meet with God. And then he comes back to the camp. And then goes out to meet with God. Comes back. And it's just kind of a picture for these people that God is not among us. You know, they begin to consider, how are we going to accomplish things if God's not with us? And it gives them a chance to consider what they may possibly do. But in the midst of this, Moses is inside this tabernacle and he's communicating with God. And in verse number 12, here's, here's what happens. Moses says in the Lord, See, thou sayest to me, bring up this people. And thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt uh, send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. The Lord responds in verse 14, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. Verse 15, Moses responds, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence, for wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. He's basically saying this, Lord, you're calling me to lead this people now by myself. You're going to send some sort of messenger to go along with me. But he goes, I'm going to lead this people. Two million stubborn as you've already seen. And you're expecting me to lead. Would you show me some sign of your grace and your mercy? I need something. I don't think I can do this. Which he's right. He can't do it himself. Verse 17. The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight. And I know thee by name. And verse 18, here's the important thing. Okay, this is where our study begins to pivot. He says this, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I mean, Moses is at this point 
very discouraged by the prospect of attempting to lead this people himself, knowing how stubborn and sinful they are, and God has said, you'll be just fine, and he's going this, I need some encouragement in the sense that I know who you are. Show me who you are. Show me your glory, a display of what you're like, your power. Display this to me so that I can go and take care of these tasks that I know are going to be difficult. But if I know you're with me and I know who you are, that I know that you are a God that takes care and is concerned. If you show me your glory, I can do this. But I need to see this. In verse 19, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy unto whom I will show mercy. As the passage is quoted in Romans 9, we looked at this. God just says this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and merciful to whom I'll be merciful. I can show kindness that they don't deserve. In fact, I delight in doing this. But in verse 20, God says this, Thou canst see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of a rock, and will cover thee with mine hand while I pass by. And I will take my hand away, and thou shalt see my back parts, but thy fa my face ye shall not see. And what he says is this, is I'm going to take you up to the mount here, Mount Sinai, and I'm going to go by, but what I'm going to do is cover you, and I'm going to go by, and then when I eventually go by, I'm going to let you see the after effects. Okay? It's not that he's saying, okay, you can see my back, you just can't see my face. It's saying, you're going to see the effects of me going by. You'll see that display. But that's not the important thing, that Moses is not needing, okay, God's really powerful and he's really incredible because he's been able to see this day in and day out as, well, God had been on Mount Sinai with all the lightning and the thundering and the, all of that, he had seen a display of God's power that way, but he's saying, I need something for daily life, dealing with people, living amongst others. I need something. And God knew that. Because what he says to him in chapter 34 is that he says, okay, you go out and you chip out some new stones that I'm going to write upon, new tablets, and you do this and come up to the mountain, be ready to come up and come up to Mount Sinai. No one's supposed to come with you, but I'm going to declare or to show you something to give you an understanding of my glory. And so verse 4, Moses hewed out the two tables of stone like in the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in hand the two tables of stone. And as he goes up there, it seems like there's a display of God's power that the Lord comes down in verse 5 and descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And Moses doesn't see anything, but what he hears is what really is the important thing. 
You know, sometimes we think this, if I could just see some magnificent display of God, I would go, that, that would be something to sustain me for generations. No, we need words. We need communication about God in order to, well, have something to rest upon. And we have this, that the Lord passed by and proclaimed. And here's where we get into this statement and why it is so important. You have this first phrase, the Lord, the Lord God. You say, why does he repeat that name? Well, that name, the Lord, is the name, well, Jehovah or Yahweh, as the Jews would pronounce it. This is a name that just by its, the lettering and the words that are there, just simply meant I am, that I exist that I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone. I'm the self-sufficient God. But this is the name that God said, I want you to hold on to because this is my personal name. You as a people can call me by this name. This is the name that you can relate to me. And I want you to understand that you can call me at any time by this name. And when he says the Lord, the Lord, in Hebrew, when you repeated something, it meant that there was, well, something even greater than just, well, the Lord is a name. He's saying this, that I am your dearest Lord. I'm your close one. You know, I'm Jehovah's. If you didn't understand that I'm really close, I'll repeat the name so that you understand. I really am the one that wants to be close to you. The one that wants to have relation to you, that I want to be your God. I am the Lord, the Lord God. And you go through and you begin to find out as you look at some of the different statements, what is he declaring about himself? You see the first statement about what he's like is that he's merciful. And you might uh, in other places translate that he is compassionate. You say, what does it mean that he's compassionate? He genuinely cares about us and towards them uh, and towards us, he holds a very tender attitude of concern and mercy. It's not that God has a lot of other things to do and he really doesn't care. We're kind of a nuisance. We're the, the, well, we're kind of this extra assignment that he has and he's really not interested in us. No, when it comes to us, he is very, very, very concerned. He's moved. I mean, this is the idea. He is moved when we go through suffering and difficulty and in our times self-inflicted injury where we wander from him. He is moved to try and solve this. Moved to try and correct this. He's concerned about this. It's not that he just goes, well, they've gone their own way. They're in difficulty. Well, I hope everything goes okay. No, the idea of merciful is that he moves towards us when things are not going well. That he is there because he does care about us. I mean, combined with the idea that he is a a God who's compassionate, it says that he's merciful and gracious. And you go, what does gracious mean? Well, gracious is going beyond what one might expect to be given to someone. It's favor that is undeserved. 
that God gives us things we don't deserve. Well, you think about this nation of Israel. Did they deserve to be God's people? And the answer is absolutely not. There were 70 nations. You read the story in Genesis. And out of all those nations, God chose Israel. You go, it's because they were such nice people. They were good. And you think, no, they weren't, because the first person that God chose out of this nation was uh, a man by the name of Abram. We know him as Abraham. And he was a worshiper of false gods. And yet God called him. You say, that's gracious. God didn't have to. He, Moses, or excuse me, Abraham was one who was wandering far from him. And yet God reached out gave him something that you get to be the father of a great nation that i'm going to bless i mean when god's gracious he's giving us something we do not deserve here you have a compassionate god who's moved towards us in our suffering and at times he gives us things we don't deserve you go why do we need that because we oftentimes wander away we wander from him God's compassionate, he's gracious, and he is, thankfully this, slow to anger. You know what does that mean, that he's slow to anger? The Hebrew behind this is that he is long-nostrilled or long of breath. It's in contrast to another phrase that we might use, being short-fused. Ever know a person that's short-fused? You may be that person. Who knows? But something happens and immediately there's a violent explosion. Rage, anger, frustration. Uh, and there's an immediate response to a situation. The idea of long-suffering is that God takes a really, really, really big breath. before he responds. I mean, if God had been not long nostriled, as soon as they started making the golden calf, the nation of Israel would have been destroyed if he wasn't long suffering. And you go, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I really like that. Well, be thankful because your first sin was enough to condemn you to an eternity in hell. But God was long-suffering, not willing, as the New Testament says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. I mean, God was long-suffering with us. And some of you go, yeah, he was really long-suffering. He chased after me a long time. I deserved his judgment a long time ago, but he was willing to reach out to me in love and in his grace and in his compassion, and he didn't judge me like I deserved. He withheld his judgment. That's a characteristic of God that we forget that even this week, you may have failed God, but you're thankful for the fact that he's long-suffering. He gives you a chance to come back in repentance, confession of sins, that God does this. I mean, slow to anger is uh, patience with less than satisfactory behavior. And God is slow to anger. We're thankful for that. But then it says that God is abundant or that he's great in goodness and in truth. Well, that word goodness is translated in many places either loving kindness or mercy. 
This is this word that you find throughout the Old Testament about God's relationship with his people. It's the word hesed. It's a word that he describes his covenant loyalty. We might say this, that he's faithful, he's loyal, he keeps the agreements that he's made. And when he said, you're going to be my people, God doesn't go back on that. He's one that holds to this, and he doesn't just merely go, I'm going to put up with it. No, he has a loyalty, a love that's shown even to unfaithful people. And you go through the prophets, especially magnified in the book of Hosea, when the nation of Israel goes off like uh, they do, and he compares it to a husband whose wife runs from him, and Hosea is the example of reaching back in love, in loyalty to a wife that has wandered off. That's what God's like. He is loyal, faithful to everything that he has committed to. He's not going to run away from that. And this idea that he's abundant in, well, in his mercy, shows a long-term reliable loyalty uh, in a relationship. God is nothing of the sort, but can be counted on in every situation and at all times to be completely faithful to his promises for his people. God's never going back on one of his promises. He's faithful. He's great in his faithfulness, as you have in one passage of Scripture that we will eventually look at, that great is thy faithfulness, even though we wander far from him. He's abundant in in his mercy. He's also abundant in truth. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, whatever he says is correct and reliable and may be trusted even to the extent of life and death issues, or indeed eternal life and death issues. What God says is always true. You know, we in our dealings with people oftentimes shade the truth. We are people who craft lies and and craft uh, deceitfully different things to protect ourselves and our reputation and those type of things. We do this all the time. God's not like that. Everything he says is always going to be true. Not once are you going to have some sort of shady dealing with God or something that you're not sure it's going to work out. If God has said it, it's going to happen because he is abundant in truth. His truth is great. And so when it comes to his promises, his promises never fail. Not a single one of them. You see in verse 7 that God keeps his mercy for thousands. It's that word has said again. That God delights in being loyal to thousands. And the idea is this, for thousands and thousands of generations. Or we might put it this way, he's loyal for eternity that's a good thing when he promises eternal life he's never going to go back on a promise like that because he's a god of truth but he's never going back on that because his mercy his loyalty his loving kindness goes on forever and ever and ever he keeps his mercy forever you don't have to worry about ever being left out by God. He's keeping mercy for thousands. And here's, here's the important thing. You go, you're dealing with a nation of people who've just committed a very great sin. And God says, 
I won't hold that against you. If you come in repentance, here's what I promise is this, that I will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. You go, what's the difference between iniquity, transgression, and sin? You really don't need to know because that covers all kinds of sin. In fact, it covers all of them. If you needed any sort of coverage for sins, there it is. Iniquity, transgression, crossing boundary lines you shouldn't be, and sin. You've got all the sins that are there, and God says, I'm willing to forgive those. I delight in restoring fellowship with you and knowing you as a people. I mean, all of these are important facts, especially needed for us who fail so often that we're sinful and we go our own way to know that God is abundant in goodness and truth, that he's long-suffering with us, that he's one who forgives iniquity and sin is something that we can grab onto day in and day out, that God delights in displaying this. It's not that God's going, oh, I hate showing goodness and mercy. No, he delights. This is what he delights in showing off about himself, declaring about himself. What am I like? I'm a God who is full of mercy and graciousness and compassion for you. This is what I'm like. Now, there is a problem with displaying that kind of characteristic of God, that God is like this. What what does our flesh then do? Well, okay, God's forgiving and kind and gracious. That means I can do whatever I want to do. And he'll forgive me. He'll still be my God. Sort of like what you have in Romans chapter 6, that this statement is made, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, should I just keep sinning because, you know, God's graciousness and compassion and, and kindness is shown in him forgiving sin? So should I just keep sinning? Well, God adds a statement at the end. He has to put it there as a balance because we tend to, when we have these type of truths about God, we tend to go, well, okay, I can get away with things. They may think this, that God's a pushover. You might say that about certain parents or teachers that you may have had, uh, that they were you know, easy to get them to do what you want and they would be kind even though you had done things that were wrong. No, God says, well, wait a second. I may be all of these things and I delight in showing this off that I'm a gracious, compassionate God who keeps my promises, but I do judge sin. Don't think that you can go and then do whatever you want because I'm like this. I'm a gracious, compassionate God. No, he says this, I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children under the third and fourth generation. If you sin and you're unrepentant, you are going to be judged. I'm not going to let you get away with it. That's part of God being jealous about his relationship. God chastens us to bring us back. God goes after us because he's going, I want you to return to the relationship. And sometimes for a person to return to the relationship, they have to realize the consequences and the pain of leaving that. And so God oftentimes of the nation of Israel will cause them to suffer. And you're going to see this as we go through the history of the nation of Israel in relation to this statement that they decide to go their own way at certain times. And God displays his mercy and compassion to them. But for those that are not willing to come to him and ask for forgiveness they're stubborn 
What does God do? God judges. But for us, as we look at a passage like this, and as we go through the weeks ahead, this is the type of passage that will help all of us. You're going to see different situations where people quote this passage and use it in certain contexts throughout the Old Testament, and it's even used in the New Testament where this passage is quoted. And you say, well, what's it good for? It's good when you fail this week and sin against God. You say, well, I'm not going to do that. And you're not looking at yourself close enough. But you're kind of going, you know what? I failed, you know, this, I failed big time. I did something I shouldn't do. wonder if God will take me back. If God still loves me. The answer is, you have a God who is abundant in mercy, compassion, loyalty to you. He's faithful. I mean, You need passages like this to remind you that God's not up there going, I can't wait to judge that person. No, there's a God up there going, no, come back. I want to fellowship with you. I want you to understand the goodness, the bounty I want to show you and display to you and let you have. And you read a passage like this where point after point after point about the characteristic of God is that God is going, I want to be in fellowship with you. And you go, is God going to be one who takes me back? And the answer is, look at his characteristics. He delights in forgiving sin. So a passage like this is a great reminder that there's a God in heaven who delights in fellowshipping with you and he wants to restore that relationship any way, shape, or form, even at the cost of his own son. He shows you his great compassion and mercy in his own son. I mean, that's what this passage is good for. It's good for us on occasions where things are horribly wrong. It's not that we've sinned or done anything wrong ourselves. It's just that things are going badly. And we're going to have passages of Scripture that we look at. We mentioned one already. The book of Lamentations has this as part of it. And you just look around and the prophet Jeremiah is in tears over the destruction of his city and the loss of people. And there's this wondering, is God so far away that he doesn't hear and he doesn't care and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't bother him what's going on? And the answer is no. He is a God who is full of faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every year. Every century, he just kind of, no, they're new every morning. 
His desire towards us and his concern for us and his care for us, it's the same day in and day out. He delights in us. And it may be that you go through some very dark times, but you come to passages like this and you go, here's a God who is concerned and compassionate and he loves me and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's concerned about me and he's loyal to me. And these things, that ought to give you something to go, okay, well, it may be that things look bad here, but my God is still there. He hasn't left me. In fact, he's more concerned about my situation than I probably am are concerned about my situation. And so this is a passage that ought to be in your mind because there are going to come days that are occasions where you feel like God is so far and he doesn't seem close and it's just due to whatever difficulty and calamity that's going on in your life. This passage is also good to remind us, don't wander away. I mean, God, God loves us and he's gracious to us, but don't think that you can just do whatever you want to do. Because this passage is a reminder that the way of the transgressor is hard it's difficult you want to wander away from this relationship with god god's jealous he's zealous about that relationship he'll do whatever he can to restore it and it may mean this that he brings you hurt and pain but he wants you to come back because he's going you're going in a way that may draw you away for eternity don't go that way i want to have fellowship with you and so you find at the end of this verse, it's just reminding us, you, you want to go ahead and sin. God is going to judge. But he's the kind of God who's judging for what purpose? To draw you back to himself. But it does serve as warning. You, know, you may be tempted to sin, but you're reminded by a passage like this that God does visit judgment. He'll do that. You know, as a father, a father delights in doing good things for his kids, but he does realize at certain times there's punishment that needs to be handed out for the sake of that child. And in love and in compassion, sometimes we need punishment to draw us back. And so as we go through this passage, and I trust that you'll, you'll memorize this passage because this ought to be the type of thing that rings out in your own soul as you go through daily activities of life and things go badly or you're sinning and you're going, well, God, take me back. The answer is absolutely. As you see the glory of God displayed in words that he communicated to Moses that, well, people in daily lives took this and used this well, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, it's just as valuable for us today as God's people. Amen. It's the same God. He hasn't changed. There hasn't been a change in who he's like and, and what he is. No, he is the same, always the same. And for us, we can grab onto this. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, that he is abundant in goodness and truth and keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, iniquity, transgression, and sin. That he's a God like that. That's his glory. I mean, we might want God to show something in the sky for us and that type of thing, but we need words like this for us to hold to our God 
to cleave to him and go, this is a God that I want. This is what he's like. And he displays his glory in his goodness, in his faithfulness, his loyalty to us. Day in and day out in everyday life. He's a good God. Look at his glory and live in relation to what you know about him. Lord, we thank you. This is one of the worst times in Israel's history, but you're declaring yourself to be a God that wants to be, well, the God of these people, to fellowship with them. Some 3,000 years later, 3,500 years later, you're still calling out to people like us and saying, I want to be your God. I'm zealous about having a relationship with you that I have compassion and care and concern. I have mercy that I want to display to you and graciousness to, to shower upon you. Lord, may we hold to truths like this. May we not to fall into our flesh or what Satan may uh, mar in our mind about what you're like. He would love us to think that you're a God who doesn't care, that you're distant, that there is no minding of us in your thoughts. No, you're a God who is concerned about us every day, every hour, every minute, and that there is a zealousness about maintaining that relationship. Help us, Lord, to live in the light of words like this. That you're a God like this. Willing to forgive sin. Willing to help. And that you delight in us coming to you. In humbleness. That's when you can show yourself strong. We thank you for passages like this. May these be burned into our soul and our consciousness that we would know you better and fellowship with you like you intended. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.